Amen. You may be seated and let's pray together. Father, we ask now for just your presence in the preaching of the word. Lord God, we pray that you would um, grace us by your spirit. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Anytime we come and sit under your word, Lord, it would be our prayer and desire to just cry out to you and say, Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, where we need to repent, let there be repentance. Where we need to change, let there be change. Lord, where we need to worship, let there be worship and celebration. Oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Contrasting cities, part two. So we're, we're back into Isaiah. So it was a three-week break, and glad to get back at it this morning. This section, chapters 28 through 31, can be a bit intimidating. It can be quite a bit confusing. Actually, the whole book can be quite intimidating and can be quite confusing, but I hope to help us just kind of unpack this and see, you know, what's really going on here is really quite simple. God's word exists to help us, to lead us, if you will, in the darkness, through the darkness. We live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a dark world, um, but God's word, we're told in Psalms, is a lamp unto my feet, right? A light unto my path. And so we look to God's word as we're living in the city of man. If you remember from previous sermon, the contrasting cities, we have the city of man and the city of God. We live in the city of man, but we live for the city of God while we're living in the city of man. As we wait to one day live in the city of God and for the city of God. Well, as we are in that period of the already and we wait for the not yet, um, God's word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a path. It's a, it's a light unto our path. And so we have this section of scripture to, to light it up for us. Human condition has not changed. We're reading from Isaiah. We're reading something thousands of years ago that took place thousands of years ago, but you're in my heart. We should be able to crawl into this text and, and realize and recognize, oh, they are us. Culture has changed, but the sinfulness of man has not. And we are not that much different. So we left off four weeks ago preaching through chapters 24 through 27 on contrasting cities and that idea of we live in the city of man, but we live for the city of God. And that's really Isaiah does a lot of that contrasting for us. When you're reading the book of Isaiah or any of the prophets, look for the contrast. It'll help you understand what, what's going on here. And so often the prophet is is. is helping us understand what's going on by creating these contrasts, very stark contrasts to help us to see. So the city of God and the city of man are being 
contrasted here, continue to be contrasted here. And the contrasting cities help us to consider which city do you live for? The city of man or the city of God? Or we could say it like this, who will you trust in? While you're living in the city of man, this side of eternity, we all live in the city of man. Who do you trust in? Do you trust in man or do you trust in God? It calls us, this section of scripture, it calls us in answering that to not give a religious answer. These are a religious people. Earlier, we preached through how they are honoring God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. So they give the right religious answer. And we all know the right religious answer that while we're living in the city of man, oh, we trust God. We know the right Sunday school answer. I live for God. But there's a difference between having the right answer and having the heartfelt answer the worshipful answer, the relationship answer, the, the answer that we're provided through a relationship with Christ Jesus. And that answer, that heartfelt answer, there's implications to that answer, right? It affects how we go about living this side of eternity in the city of man. Here's the big idea. There are two crowns, two voices, and two trusts. Two crowns, two voices, and two trusts that we all must face while we live in the city of man and while we live for the city of God. Two crowns. The key word in chapter 28 is crown. Hear it again, verse one. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Listen to the contrast. Here it is again, verse three. Contrast, not yet. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. Here, verse 5, contrast. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. A crown represents glory. It represents pride. It represents splendor and majesty and importance and value. Here, Isaiah is in Judah. He's in the southern kingdom, looking to the northern kingdom, to the city of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And as he looks to the capital city, Samaria, well, it would be considered the crown of Israel. It's the splendor of Israel. It's the crown of the nation, the glory and the splendor and the majesty. But here's the problem. Samaria has been defeated. Samaria is in destruction. In what sense are these northern kingdom people of God, in, in, in what sense are they defeated and a crown of glory? Well, Isaiah describes the crown as being prosperous and glorious. And how does he describe the crown of Samaria? A drunken stupor. Ah, oh, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. And he will go on to explain that drunkenness. What is Isaiah saying here? 
Look again, middle of verse 1. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord is the one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail and destroying tempest. Like a storm mighty overflowing waters, he cast down the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a, a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. What Isaiah is describing here is the drunken pride of man, intoxicated with himself. And what's going on here? is really Romans 1 and 2, is that they're exchanging the glory of God for the glory of themselves. They're exchanging true value and worth, God, for prosperity that man has created. For the glory of man, they exchange the glory of God. The glory of God who is their deliverer they're looking to themselves to be their deliverer. We'll see that in a little bit. We will be our own deliverer, glory of man, as opposed to looking to God as our deliverer, glory of God. Trust in ourselves. Trust in our own accomplishments. Look to us. Look at our beautiful, valuable crown, city, Samaria. And here's the point that Isaiah is making to God's people here in chapter 28, but to God's people here this morning, March 8, 2020. We've all seen the drunk person at the wedding reception. He or she becomes a spectacle of foolishness. It becomes funny, and then it becomes sad. The drunk person at the wedding reception thinks himself or herself to be wise. Puff your chest out. Let me show you the glory of all that I know. Let me wax eloquently and pontificate on political things and economic things and all the wonders of the world. Let me tell you all that I know. And the more he or she talks, the more foolish it becomes. The drunk person perceives a reality which isn't reality. The drunk person doesn't perceive what truly is. And Isaiah is saying, listen, this is Ephraim. This is the once people of God in the northern kingdom. They are spiritually drunk on themselves. They are so proud that they, even though they've been defeated... They're drunk. They don't perceive reality. And they're still sticking their chest out, waxing eloquently. Look at our beautiful city. 
like a drunk might. Verse 1, the night, if you will, started off with flowers on the table, on the tables at the wedding reception, and a crown on the head. But at this point, the flowers have faded of its glorious beauty. The flowers are wilted. The crown is tilted. Beauty is gone. And did you hear as Josiah was reading? It's really quite graphically gross. Verse 8, for all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Vomit now covers the table. And yet we will continue to boast in our glory. Look at us. We are Samaria, the crown of the nation. Look at verse 14 again. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. We'll unpack this. They've been scoffing at God. Who rule this people in Jerusalem? Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. With Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. They are, they are boasting in the covenant they have made with death. Sound like a drunk person? Like the drunk uncle at the wedding reception. They're saying, we're safe now. We've made an alliance with our enemies. That's why Isaiah is saying, you've made a covenant with death. We've made an alliance with our enemies. We're safe now. Look at, look at this great alliance we've made with our enemy as we have turned away from God, rejected alliance with the Lord. We are embracing our enemy and alliance with the enemy. And well, Isaiah is making it clear. You, you've made a covenant with death. Uh, we've made lies our refuge. In falsehood, we have taken shelter. Like a drunken fool, they are out of touch with reality. But there's another crown that Isaiah speaks of in chapter 28. Look again, verse 5. In that day. Just, just pause there and hear the mercy of God. In that day of drunken spiritual stupor, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Praise be to God, there's another crown in chapter 28. There's another crown in chapter 28, and it is a crown of true glory, of lasting glory, of eternal glory, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Let me tell you something. If you're here this morning and you're genuinely a follower, a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, you're trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a part of that remnant people. That crown 
is not the crown of your accomplishments. It's not the crown of look what I did to create my salvation. It's not the crown that points to anything that man has created. It is the crown, it is the glory of our God. The world's crowns are of empty value. They are a covenant with death. They are a lie becomes our refuge. The world's crowns are of empty value. They are worthless. But I thought my accomplishments are the reason that, that makes me acceptable to God. I thought it was my good works, my good efforts that makes me presentable to God. I thought these were to be valued and praised and a worthwhile pursuit. And all the way back here, Old Testament, Old Covenant, before the, the grace that we see in the New Testament, we see here, no, it's not about your accomplishments in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It is about the grace of God. It is about his crown, his glory, and not ours. The crown here in 28 and the crown here in our day is being exposed as a cheap imitation polish the, the appearance of the gold and find out that it just rubs right off. The prophet is calling us to look to God. He is the crown of glory, verse six, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Our prayer ought to be, God, expose us Expose the city of man in us. Expose its values, its, its false, shiny glimmer that looks like something glorious, but we've become drunken with this world and we think what is glorious, well, it's in the economy of God, it's foolishness. It's empty worthlessness. Our prayer ought to be, God, expose the city of man, its values, its worthlessness. Expose it for what it is. Make me see what is that which is of true value, the crown of glory, the true worthiness of the city of God. But the city of man doles our perception, doesn't it? We get drunk on the things of this world. Church, you were made for more than this. You were created for more than a broken world. You were hardwired for more than a shiny, false, glimmer crown. It appears to shine in the false lights of the world. The false shine of this world has some of us in a drunken stupor and you're not perceiving reality. God is the crown of glory. He is the glory everlasting, and we are to put on that crown as we live in the city of man. We live for the city of God. We adorn ourselves with the crown of lasting value and worth and glory. Ray Ortland Jr. says it like this, God is the least exploited resource in the world. The one we treat as our last resource, resort is, in fact, our fountainhead. It's 
So I ask you, what shiny crown has this world sold you? What dazzling thing has tugged at your heart and pulled you away from true glory? You know, we're like the mosquitoes chasing after the light, the bug light. Drunken stupor mosquitoes. What dazzling thing has tugged at your heart and pulled you away from true glory? Where have you been seduced by the world in your intoxicated spiritual condition? Which crown are you wearing while living in the city of man? Well, not only are there two crowns, there's also two contrasting voices. Look at verse number nine. Two voices. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Your voice. Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. What? Isaiah, what are you saying? Verse 9, he says, to whom will he teach? The he there is Isaiah. This is the priests, the prophets, drunken assessment of Isaiah. All right, so the religious leaders of the day, their assessment of Isaiah and their assessment of Isaiah's message is, well, it's childish. Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, from precept upon precept. It's, it's Isaiah's way of saying to the hearer who's hearing Isaiah's message, you treat Isaiah's message as if it's blah, 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 blah. It's childish gibberish. As Isaiah brings the message of God, and can just consider that, and he calls the people to repentance, the religious leader's response is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, line upon line, blah, 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 blah. We're beyond this childish message of yours, Isaiah. Look, furthermore, verse 11, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. You see, there are two voices in chapter 28. One voice is mocking the Lord. One voice we hear is the mockery. The other voice is the voice of the Lord. And as we live in the city of man, it really boils down, there are really just two voices in this world. Just two. There is the voice of the Lord and there are all others. And you might be here and you might even be here this morning and you're thinking, what is this guy talking about? You might even be thinking, whatever, two voices, 
one of God and all the others, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Line upon line. Some think that God's word is nothing more than childish gibberish. You see, nothing has changed since Isaiah's day. Some think of God's word as something that's infantile. It's something for the kids. We are more sophisticated than this. Why would anybody believe this book? It's an ancient book, says the professor of the university. It's irrelevant. It's foolishness. We've evolved beyond this book. We're enlightened. We don't need a book that tells us of a man who actually walked on water, who healed the blind. We don't need a book that tells us that its savior rose from the dead. We've progressed beyond this childish, gibberish ramblings. God's voice calls us to repentance, and in their day and in ours, it's scoffed at. Did you hear verse 14? Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. The religious leaders are rejecting God. They make an alliance with Egypt. Egypt's voice called them to listen to them. Imagine, just imagine It is their very enemy is saying to them, you can trust us? (laughs) I wish this book was relevant to us today. I wish that I could say we have an enemy that would say to us today, you can trust me. Let the sarcasm drip off the podium. I will protect you. That's what... That's what the alliance was about. Egypt saying to them, I'll be your protector. Join up with us. Wait, don't we have a history with Egypt? Drunken stupor. Israel's enemy had come to steal, kill, and destroy. Yet it lied to them. They made lies our refuge. So we found safety in the lie, right? That's what's being said there. We'll find our safety, our refuge in the lies of our enemies. And in their drunken stupor, look at my glitzy crown, which has been destroyed. They misperceive the reality that they're making a deal with the enemy. They decided the enemy was to be more trusted than their God. They decided that we can make an alliance with the enemy because we'll forget the history, not only of Egypt, but we're going to forget the history of our God as well. God has shown himself to be their deliverer, but let's forget about that. And let's forget about our history that uh, Egypt was our slave masters. Let's make a deal with the enemy. Drunken stupor, spiritually speaking. 
Isaiah is saying, now, he writes these things, again, in the southern kingdom, pointing to the northern kingdom. So he's saying to the people, and he's saying to these people this morning, look at what's going on to the north of you, and do not follow their example. Learn. Learn from them. So they scoff, verse 14 Verse 15, because you have said we've made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. You can almost read this with a drunken accent, right? Like it just sounds drunken. With Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge and falsehood. We've taken shelter. Thus, therefore, thus says the Lord, and praise be to God, there's more than one voice in chapter 28. Not only are there two crowns in chapter 28, but there are two voices in chapter 28. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overcome the shelter. Sound familiar? Have you heard that before somewhere in your Bibles? Behold, I, I am the one who's laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone. 1 Peter 2. Let me read it from 1 Peter as he's quoting back. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in scripture, quote, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter and Isaiah, wow, tag teaming. Here comes Peter off the ropes. Landing hard, Christ will come and he will be examined by men. And the judgment of men is that he's an unworthy cornerstone. That's what Peter's saying. As you evaluate and you judge Christ and you judge his ability, the cornerstone being the, the entire foundation, the entire building is built on that cornerstone. The judgment of man is unworthy, bad cornerstone. It can't support the building. And so they rejected Christ as an unfit cornerstone, an unworthy stone. The foundation stone is not good enough to build this building. You upon spiritual house. And so men reject him. But God, his voice is in chapter 28. God has chosen him to be the precious cornerstone. It is kind of, it doesn't matter whether or not what, what man's assessment of the cornerstone is really is a moot point. What matters is the assessment of the creator of the universe 
and the redeemer of our souls. And God has chosen this man, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to be the precious cornerstone upon which the house is built and will stand. Similar to Isaiah, Peter is saying some will reject him, but some will embrace him. There will be a remnant. Church, as for me, Christ is my solid rock. I can build my life on Christ. I exhort you, build your home on the solid rock who is Jesus Christ. Build your marriage, build your family, build your children. Build your Mondays on the solid rock who is Jesus Christ. Build every day. Build every breath until your last dying breath on Jesus Christ. He is a solid rock. He is a cornerstone. He's the worthy stone of our lives. Whose voice are you listening to while living in the city of man? How do you hear the voice of the Lord? I'm glad you asked. We could spend another sermon. This is how you hear the voice of the Lord. Well, there are not only two crowns and two voices, but there's also two trusts. While we live in the city of man for the city of God. Chapter 30. Turn with me. Chapter 30, verse Let's look at verses one through five. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge, listen to this, in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt, Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For those, though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Look at chapter 31, verse number one. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Let's just time out there for a minute. There are two trusts in this section. And what he's saying is you're trusting in the alliance of your enemy and you're looking at their army and you're saying, wow, they got a big army. Let's, let's link up with them is completely forgotten. You know how many times, I don't know, I didn't look. How many times has Isaiah referred to the Lord as the Lord of hosts? Ultimately, this text is about trust. Who or what will you trust in while living in the city of man? You see, there will be a day when we live in eternity in heaven or in hell. And at that point, trusting in the Lord will no longer be an issue. As you live in eternity with God in heaven, 
you've repented, if you're trusting in Christ, you won't need to trust the Lord. You, 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 won't, you won't be tempted not to trust the Lord. There is no sin in heaven. You will only, I mean, trust just, it's going to be a non-issue. I'm not going to be tempted to doubt whether or not the Lord is going to come through. He came through. <laughs> it's done. It's finished. But while we live here and now, we're called to put our trust in God. And, and the reason it honors God and glorifies God and is a crown to his glory is that we trust in the Lord. That sounds simple, doesn't it? Trust God. We, we say that. I oh, just need to trust the Lord. As if it's just trust, you know, as if that's a simple thing. I'll just trust God. I'm not feeling well. I'll just trust God. I don't have a job. Just trust God. <laughs> nice Christianese cliches. It sounds simple. It sounds easy. But listen, if you've been a believer for more than five minutes, right? You know how difficult that can be. How is it that I can have faith in Christ one minute and wonder, God, where are you in the next? Why is it as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe in Jesus so much so? Walk with me here a minute. We believe in Jesus so much so that I will bank my eternal life on this man, Jesus. We bank our eternity on Jesus, and yet we fail to trust him in small, smaller things. Oh, as far as my salvation goes, I trust in Jesus for my eternity. But as far as like, you know, issues of what I do with my money, and honoring the Lord with my finances, that's just too hard. Eternity, yeah, I'm down with that. Seeking God in prayer, <laughs> I'm not sure he's that big of a God that I would want to go that far. You know, something whispers into my heart that says God is too much of a risk. Maybe I ought to tone it down. Don't be a fanatic and actually trust him with everyday things in your life. Trust him with my eternity, you bet. Trust him for my day-to-day, -day, I don't want to get carried away. Drunken stupor. Out of the whispers of doubt, I find myself questioning God's wisdom or fearing what I just heard on the news or anxiously considering my week. How is it that we can be followers of Christ, trusting in him for salvation, and paralyzed in trusting him with the rest? Can God be trusted? Can he be fully trusted, trusted for our eternity and trusted for our Monday? Trusted with reckless abandonment, radical trust. Well, if we sign up for that, there are implications of that. 
right? Like if you think of reckless abandonment, I will trust in the Lord, what will that do to your prayer life? Listen, we don't pray because we don't trust him. Oh, but my eternity? Sure, sign me up for that. There are implications to our faith, our trust in Christ. Now, Isaiah's been saying the armies are coming. Repent, trust in God. The leaders are saying, yeah, we can see the armies coming. We can see that they destroyed Samaria to the north. They're on their way to destroy us. So let's trust in our enemies. Drunken stupor. And what I'm saying to us this morning is we do the same thing. Put our trust in the armies that we can see rather than the Lord of hosts who leads an army we cannot see. Let's make a deal with Egypt. But it's a covenant of death. Its lies are your refuge. What does a covenant of death look like for us today? It looks like this. I believe in God. I believe he'll just overlook my sin. That it's really not that big of a deal. I can live the way that I want to live. And God is loving and God is forgiving. We're all going to go to heaven except those really bad people. They probably won't, but we all will. You make lies your refuge. It's a drunken spiritual stupor. This is trusting in the city of man. But for the Christian, you are a people of God. Yes, we live in the city of man, but we belong to the city of God. Yes, we live for the city of God. We are a people of faith. We trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and we lean not in our own understanding and in all of our ways we acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. The cornerstone of our lives is faith in Jesus Christ. And when I say that, I say all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. The cornerstone, that stone that's going to hold up the entire building, your faith, to walk you all the way through. That stone has an inscription on it. The inscription on the stone is this. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. Isaiah is saying, be like the farmer. Did you see that? Back to 28. You didn't see it. We haven't read it yet. 28, verse 24. Be like the farmer. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, soak cumin and put in wheat and rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border. What is he saying? He's saying, be like the farmer who sows wisely. He's wisely sowing because verse 26, he's listening to the word of God. He's listening to the voice of God for he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. He's hearing God's word. He's responding to God's word. 
He harvests wisely and he's rewarded. Verse 27, dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheeled rolled over cumin. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but dill is beaten out with a stick, cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever when he drives his cartwheel over it. With his horses, he does not crush it. Isaiah is saying, be like the farmer, sow wisely, listen to the voice of God. He will harvest wisely. He will be rewarded. He is blessed because he listens to God's word, the voice of God. Verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Listen, everyone in the room has faith. Everyone in the room is trusting in someone or something. There are only two options. We trust in the gods of this world. We trust in our own abilities. We trust in ourselves to get it all figured out. That's faith. Isaiah is describing that as a drunken stupor faith. You're misperceiving reality or we trust in God and we put our faith in him and we look away from ourselves and we look to the one who created you and I and redeemed you and I and will lead us safely home. Who or what do you really trust in? Where do you look for security, comfort, or peace? See, we all live for one of these two cities. One lives with God at the center and one lives with the values of the world at the center. One will pass away and one is eternal. One pursues God, one rejects God. One glories in self, one glories in the Lord. One will be exposed as vain and empty and worthless and one will be exposed as eternal and worthwhile. One pretends at religion and might even call oneself Christian. One lays down his life for Jesus Christ. These two cities are worlds, worlds apart. There are two crowns, two voices, two trusts that we all must face while living in the city of man and living for the city of God. Let's stand together and worship the solid rock, our Savior.